0: Today we will be giving a summary of the entire practice of anapanasati. We will go through and summarize what has been discussed so far in the previous talks. And so today we will, will, will summarize the characteristics of the sixteen steps, the purpose, benefits and usefulness of these sixteen steps, and then the method and way of practice to realize the benefits of these sixteen steps. Please pay close and careful attention so that you will understand the essentials of this practice in order to continue practicing it correctly, in order to realize the benefits which come with the correct practice of mindfulness of breathing. Please don't forget that what we're talking about is something natural. This whole business of anapanasati has to do with nature. It is completely natural. Never forget this. In this natural process, we need to understand four different aspects of nature. The gaya, or bodies, vetanā, feelings, citta, the heart, mind, and dhamma truth, and reality. We're studying nature in these four aspects. And please understand the word nature in the Buddhist sense. In the West, nature is often opposed to man. Nature is set off for man to conquer or destroy as man sees fit. But the way the Buddha saw it man is just a part of nature and so there is no distinction between nature and man everything about us is just another aspect of nature and so in anapanasati we study these four aspects of nature we study them in order to be able to use them when these things are understood then they can be used in a way that will bring, bring benefits and usefulness to life. Throughout these talks, we've, we've discussed controlling these various things. We've talked about controlling the breathing, controlling the feelings. In reality, it is impossible to have any kind of absolute control over any of these things because they're just natural phenomena there is nothing which can absolutely control them but in relative terms we can talk about using them controlling them within certain limits so there is a truth some truth in talking about relative control so in understand these things understanding these things we learn how to use them in order to derive benefits from them in order to live life correctly. The first thing that is studied in the practice of mindfulness of breathing is the gaya, or bodies, or the body. The body is studied for reasons which we have already explained. We'll just go through a few of them quickly. The body is the foundation for the mind. Without the body, there would be no jītā. So the body is a necessary component of life. And as it fulfills this necessary position in life, it needs to be understood. So in this, this first group of steps, the first tetrad, we study the body, the gāyā, Especially we study the breathing, because in the breathing there is something very, very worth knowing and understanding. There is a lot of very useful knowledge which we can find within the breathing. So in these first steps we learn how to calm the body to get some control over the body. This is very useful. And in, we do this by controlling the breathing. Doing this has a variety of benefits. For example, if we're angry, we can learn how to let go of that anger, to dispel that anger by breathing long, by breathing very, very long. And then the anger will go away. We can learn to do this through the practice of mindfulness of breathing. Or if the mind is is all caught up and agitated by some, some idea or a train of thought, the mind can free itself from that agitation and tension by breathing with long breathing. By breathing long, long and and gentle and peaceful, then the mind can free itself from these disturbing and anxious thoughts. So in this way, the breathing can be used to change moods and emotions. And this is something we discover in the first tetrad. And not only that, breathing long is and peacefully and gently is very useful for good health. The more gentle and deep and long our breaths, the more healthy the body will be. So studying the breathing and learning how to have control over the breathing brings a variety of benefits, not just physical benefits regarding the body itself, but also benefits related to the mind. And this emphasizes once again that body and mind are, are interrelated. And now the vetanā, which we usually translate the feelings. If you aren't acquainted with these things, then you won't think that they are of any importance whatsoever. You'll think that they're no big deal. But in reality, the vaitanā are of the highest importance to human beings, or to all beings, because the the vaitanā are what make the world spin round. The vaitanā turn the world. The meaning of this is that so much of what we do, everything we do, is chasing after or running away from pleasant and unpleasant feelings. At the base of almost all of our activities, there are either pleasant feelings drawing us, calling us, attracting us, or unpleasant feelings which we are running away from trying to get free of. And so this, this, these feelings are constantly spinning us around, turning this way and turning that way because of the feelings. And then this turning of ourselves, the way the Vedanas spin us round, this is what turns the world. All the things happening in the world are because of individuals like us trying to get certain kinds of feelings and get rid of other kinds of feelings. All the material progress that we've been experiencing is a result of the attempt to in, indulge in various Vedana, or hide from other kind of Vedana. And all the arts, and all the education and everything is is rooted in the vetanā and the power that vetanā have over the human mind. So we can say that these feelings turn the world, they make the world spin, and this shows their great importance. If the vetanā have this kind of power and influence over us in this way, then we may begin to see the need to get some control over the situation. As it is now, the vetanā, these feelings dominate us, they possess us and overwhelm us. This is the state of the world where the, the feelings of human beings, of creatures, are dominating the world, motivating all our behaviors. And so we begin to see the need To get some control over this situation and and get ourselves out from under this slavery to pleasant and unpleasant feelings. This is true also for for animals. (laughs) We can see that even in animals, they are trying to acquire certain pleasures. They're walking around or flying around looking for various pleasures and avoiding doing what they can to get rid of unpleasant feelings. And so this, we can see that not only human beings in the human world, but animals in the world of animals is spun round by the feelings. This is also true of all the various realms and worlds that they're caught up in the feelings. The problem with us is that these feelings are bound up in ignorance. There is not a full and complete understanding of them, which allows us to be free of them. All the feelings are rooted in and accompanied, accompanied by ignorance. And then this leads to desire, to craving, and all the defiled activity that we see being enacted around us. So the, the feelings have this incredibly powerful influence upon ourselves, animals, the world, just about everything. And so we need to, to get some perspective on this. You can see that even in yourselves, in coming here to Mok. why did you come here? It's most, isn't it true that you came here in order to get some kind of feelings? either to, you are looking for certain kinds of pleasant feelings, the peace and quiet of a monastery, or the joy of meditation, or else trying to get away from some of the agitation or tension or suffering in the world. That one way or another you came to Suan Mo because of these feelings. So we can see on all these different levels what a powerful impact the feelings have. And so in the second tetrad of Anapanasati, we study these feelings in order to develop some freedom to get out from under their control. As with many things that we talk about in Dhamma, there are two kinds of vetanā, wise vetanā and ignorant. When there is sense contact, the meeting between sense organ, sense object, and sense consciousness, when these three come together, there is what we call sense contact, which or sense experience. The mind always reacts to sense experience. If there is no wisdom present, Then that reaction is foolish and ignorant because lacking, because knowledge and wisdom is lacking. However, if there is wisdom present, then the reaction to the sense experience will be wise. This reaction is what we call Vedana. With wise Vedana, no problems will arise. But with foolish vaitanā, a variety of problems will ensue. When there is foolish vaitanā, which is based in ignorance, this will lead to craving, to an ignorant kind of desire. When there is wise vaitanā, or wise feeling, which is not a defiled kind of feeling, which we're most accustomed to. Then there will arise wanting also, but it will be a kind of wanting that is based in wisdom and knowledge. And so that wanting we can call wise wanting. Please notice this distinction, it's very important. There is a distinction between wise wanting or wise desire and ignorant wanting, ignorant desire. There's a big difference which you need to be aware of. When there is ignorant feeling, then there will be ignorant desire or craving, thirst, hunger, which sends us searching all over the world in order to satisfy that craving. And we can see this foolish craving leading to all sorts of things we have cravings for things like to go to the moon. And so we spend millions and millions of dollars to develop fancy equipment in order to send a few people to the moon and do a few little scientific experiments. But because that craving can never be satisfied, going to the moon isn't enough. So there is always craving for more, farther, higher, better. And so this craving is always sending the human species running round and round it's endless there's there's no end to this craving because craving can never be satisfied but when there is wise want then there is wisdom and knowledge con- about the conditions and one knows the limits which one is working in and so the the wanting is always in the realm of possibility, and there's always the understanding that things may not work out the way we thought they might. And so there can be wise wanting, which is always balanced and does not lead to to problems. So feelings, which lead to these different kinds of of wanting, which are the cause, Of all our problems in dukkha are very, very important. Learning how to control these feelings so that they are wise instead of foolish is an incredibly powerful tool in living a life of freedom and peace. So you can begin to see the the importance and the benefits that arise out of understanding and being able to master the feeling. You're all aware and have been for quite a while of the importance of the mind or the heart, the jitta. When we talk about the mind, we have three different words we use, depending on the function of mind. Which is being performed. There is the word jitta, which is used when there is the, the, there is thinking taking place. So we say that jitta is what thinks. Then there is what we call mano. Mano is when there is the perceptions and sensitivities and awareness of things, the the feeling or knowing of things. This is called mano. And then there is, the third is vijnana, which is the bare sensory consciousness involved in all sense experience. In any seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, etc., there is a bare level of mental consciousness or sensory consciousness involved, and that we call vijnana. So when we talk about the jita, we're talking about these, we can talk about these three aspects of thinking, awareness and sensitivity, and then sensory consciousness, jita, mano, and vijnana. The mind is, has such a central, the mind having this central role in life must be understood as well as the other things we've discussed. And it has to be kept under control. If the mind is not restrained and trained to act in accordance with nature, then all sorts of problems will will follow. So it's absolutely necessary to understand and train the mind. The mind that gets out of control will get into all kinds of problems which will lead to conflict and strife in the world. But through training the mind, it is possible to find peace within oneself, and in the world. In fact, the mind is is so crucial that we can say without the mind there is no world. There is no way of knowing that the world exists or knowing anything about the world without the mind. So for us, the world only exists because of mind. And so it's because of the mind that things exist. We could not even know of our bodies without the mind. So this, this points out the mind's importance. And so it must be kept in balance and under control in a wise way so as to remain free of dukkha. Now we come to the fourth tetrad, the tetrad which deals with tama or truth. There are two basic things in when we talk about truth, we need to know the truth about everything that has to do with ourselves, everything that makes up ourselves, and everything that is related or comes into contact with ourselves. All these things need to be known. In knowing these things, that make up ourselves and our lives, we need to know two kinds of truth. There are, these two kinds of truth can be divided up into the truth of phenomena and the truth of nuamana or nomina. I'm not sure, N-O-U-M-E-N-A, nomina. It must. He insists that it be singular. So, there are these two kinds of truth. The truth of phenomena is the truth of compounded things, of saṅkhāra, which we've discussed a few times. The truth of phenomena, of compounded things, is that they are all impermanent. In realizing this truth, of compounded things, then we learn not to attach to phenomena. In seeing that all phenomena are impermanent, then we learn to not attach to them, and these phenomena do not become a source of dukkha. As this is understood, in understanding the truth of anicca, impermanence, and learning not to attach. phenomena, then we begin to see the truth of noumenon, of the truth of the thing which is uncompounded. There is one, just one uncompounded thing, and so we need to see the truth of this uncompounded thing. And this uncompounded thing has the truth of nijang, permanence. All all compounded things are impermanent, but the noumenon, the uncompounded thing, the non-compounded thing, is permanent. Seeing this truth is to see the truth of Nibbāna. And so in talking about the fourth tetrad of Dhamma, the essence is seeing the truth of anijang, impermanence, to the degree that one begins to let go of attachment and realizes the truth of nichang, permanence, of the non-compounded, the unconditioned, which is nibbana. So these are the four things, the four secrets of nature which need to be studied and understood in the practice of anapanasati the secrets of the body, the feelings, the mind, and of truth. This is the benefits of practicing anapanasati. is coming to realize these truths. There are further benefits as well. In practicing anapanasati, we will train and develop what I like to call the four Dhamma comrades or four comrades in Dhamma. This is a name I came up with on my own. You won't find it in the scriptures. When I talk about these four comrades in Dhamma, I mean sati, panya, sampajanya, and samati. Sati, mindfulness, heedfulness. Panya, wisdom. Sampajjanya, wisdom in action, and Samati the one, the mind which has one pinnacle or peak as its object. By practicing mindfulness of breathing, these four comrades are developed, and then they can be used to live in this world. No matter whether we're inside a monastery or outside, we're all living in the world. There is really no meaning to the words, the real world, if you apply it to just part of the world. It's all real or it's all unreal, both inside and outside. And wherever we are, we're in the world and we must use these four comrades to live even inside the monastery, you can make foolish mistakes and create all kinds of problems for yourself. And This is true outside as well. So this distinction is no longer valid. No matter where we are, we're in the world, and we must use these four Dhamma comrades in order to live correctly in the world. The way these are used is that in every experience of life, in every sense experience, every time there is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thinking, or feeling, when any of these different kinds of sense experience arise, there must be sati at that experience. There must be mindfulness of that experience. If mindfulness is quick enough To be there at that point of contact, then mindfulness will bring wisdom. It will go and retrieve wisdom that we have stored throughout our lives, and wisdom that we have built up through proper meditation practice. When this wisdom is brought to the specific experience or specific situation, which is unfolding at this very moment. Then that wisdom, or banya, transforms into sampajanya, wisdom in action. There's a difference between the general stored wisdom, which we all have, and the wisdom which is applied to deal with a specific situation. So sati retrieves wisdom and then it is applied as wisdom in action. And then the fourth comrade, Samadhi, provides the energy and strength to back up these other three comrades so that the necessary work is done successfully. When all four of these comrades are developed sufficiently so that they are strong enough and quick enough, then all the experiences of life can be uh, can be dealt with by these four comrades, and then no problems will uh, arise in life. So this is another benefit of mindfulness of breathing, that these four comrades, these four Dham, comrades in Dhamma, are developed in order that they can be used in every moment of our daily life. The next benefit has to do with what is called vaticca samuppat, or which is usually translated dependent origination. Dependent origination is often a very complex theory, which is generally misunderstood, especially by Western scholars. This very complicated theory can cause a lot of can cause us lots of problems if we only take it as theory, because there are all sorts of variations and details and subtleties to study. But when it is applied, the practice of dependent origination is exquisitely simple, it's very simple, and so one needn't get lost in all the theory and explanation. The practice, of well, this dependent origination, for those of you who aren't very familiar with it, is basically the causal arising of suffering, of dukkha. Through a series of causes, each cause dependent on a previous cause, there arises or there originates suffering. So this is called dependent origination. There are many different variations on this theme and then reverses of it and various other possibilities. So dependent origination is essentially the causal conditioning of dukkha. In practice, it all boils down, though, to just one thing, and that is at the moment of sense contact, or patsa, when the eye sees a form, there's the eye, and say a tree, and then consciousness, vijnana comes in. These three come when these three come together, there is sense contact. Then there is seeing, there is the sensory experience of seeing. The same thing happens with the other sense doors, the ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. Whenever there is patsa contact of this sort, sense experience, sati must be there. It must be quick enough and strong enough to be right at that moment of contact. If sati is there at the moment of contact, then that contact will not lead to ignorant feeling, and the ignorant feeling will not lead to craving. The craving will not lead to attachment and so on in the conditioning of dukkha. This is the practice of this theory that is called the Pendant Origination. And by, is to, for sati to be on time, fast enough and strong enough to catch each of those sensory contacts. Sati develops, is developed through the practice of mindfulness of breathing so that it is quick enough. And then sati cuts through this flow of dependent origination of dukkha. Sati stops it at the point of contact. In the ignorance, there is no ignorance which leads to dukkha. And so this this process of dependent origination is stopped. This is the third benefit of mindfulness of breathing, that sati is trained to the degree where it can stop the flow of paticca samuppada of dependent origination. The next benefit of the practice of anapanasati is that it allows us and gives us the ability to practice according to the four noble truths the arya Satya. Everybody has heard of the Four Noble Truths. And the essence of them is that craving, dāñā, craving or ignorant desire, is the cause of dukkha. And the end of that craving is the end of dukkha. This is the essence of the Four Noble Truths. Through the practice of mindfulness of breathing, sati, Mindfulness is quick enough and strong enough to prevent the arising of craving. When craving does not arise or when craving has been ended, then dukkha does not arise. This is how to practice the Four Noble Truths, to stop the arising, to prevent the arising of craving. And then dukkha does not arise also. So this is done when there is sati at the moment of sense contact, then there is, that sense contact is wise, and there is no ignorant feeling which conditions ignorant craving, and so dukkha does not arise. This is the next further benefit of the practice of mindfulness of breathing. The next benefit of anapanasati is that we will have the triple gem of Buddhism or the three refuges of Buddhism. These tri- the triple gem is the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. And these the Buddha Dhamma and Sangha are the three refuges that we find safety in. Many people think that the way to have these three refuges is to say a few chants and bow down to the monks or images, and then one has taken these three refuges. That's a very shallow meaning for them. Through the practice of anapanasati, through the practice of anapanasati, one can truly have these three gems and three Three refuges, because the essence of these three, of each of them, is what is purity, brightness, and tranquility. In Thai, saat sa, cleanliness or purity, sawang brightness, radiance, and calmness or tranquility. These three qualities are the essence of the Buddha, of the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Through the practice of mindfulness of breathing, the mind develops these three qualities of purity, brilliance, and and tranquility. So this is the meaning of the Buddha. The Buddha was the one who practiced until discovering the mind, the Buddha mind, that is pure, bright, and calm. And in discovering the Buddha mind, the Buddha discovered Dhamma, truth. That that truth is pure, bright, and tranquil. And then there are, is the Sangha, those followers of the Buddha, the people who have come after the Buddha and practiced according to the Buddha's advice, and in doing so discovered the mind that is pure, bright, and tranquil. Through anapanasati, when it is fully practiced and successfully completed, then the mind is trained and develops and awakens to this purity, brightness, in calmness. This was described when we explained the last steps of virakā, fading away of attachment, nirotā, the cessation of attachment, and badinitākā, the throwing back of all the things we've attached to, the returning of them to nature. So these three gems can be obtained through the practice of anapanasati by discovering and realizing the mind that is the true meaning of buddha-dhamma and sangha, the mind that is pure and clean, bright and radiant and tranquil. And now the next benefit of the practice of anapanasati is that through this practice, We are also practicing the most fundamental principle of Buddhism. The most basic and fundamental teaching of Buddhism can be stated as sila, samadhi, panya. Sila is virtue or right conduct, right behavior in body, speech and mind. Samadhi, concentration and mental development, and banya wisdom this is the fundamental principle of buddhism when anapanasati has been practiced successfully then there have then these three factors of sila samati and Banya are present and are are fulfilled when there is the intention the right intention the wise wanting to practice anapanasati. That is the meaning of sila, of virtue, this right intention. With that right intention to practice anapanasati, then there will be the meditation and concentration, that is samadhi. And following upon that, there will arise wisdom. Panya. So in practicing anapanasati correctly, these three factors which make up the basic, most fundamental principle of Buddhism will be complete. And so this is another of the benefits of anapanasati: that in practicing it, the most important teaching of Buddhism is also being practiced and realized at the exact same time. When we speak in a summarized way, we can talk about sila, samati, banya. When we speak in more detail, we can also talk of what are called the seven ojanga, or the seven factors of enlightenment. The Buddha said that when the sixteen steps of anapanasati are fully practiced and perfected, then the four foundations of mindfulness are perfected. These four foundations are contemplation of the body, contemplation of the feelings, contemplation of the jītā, and contemplation of dhamma, which we've talked about throughout these talks. When these four foundations of mindfulness are perfected, the Buddha said that the seven factors of enlightenment are perfected. To talk about these seven factors of enlightenment in detail would take a few hours, and we don't have that much time. So we're just going to point out the essence of the the matter. And if you want, you can look into these things on your own. The seven factors of enlightenment, when these are perfected, bring about enlightenment. Once these seven are perfected, enlightenment is assured. And so the f- full practice of the sixteen steps of anapanasati leads to the perfection of these seven factors of enlightenment. And then it is inevitable that enlightenment will follow. These seven factors of en- enlightenment begin with sati, the sati factor of enlightenment. And then it is followed with dhamma the investigation of Dhamma. And then Wiriya effort, or the energy factor of enlightenment. Then piti, the contentment factor of enlightenment. Patsaddhi, the tranquility factor of enlightenment. Samati, the, tran- the concentration factor of enlightenment. And then upekā, the equanimity factor of enlightenment. These seven factors are developed through the completion of anapanasati, and then enlightenment is assured. And now for the most positive benefit of all. The most positive benefit of the practice of mindfulness of breathing is Nibbāna. The meaning of Nibbāna is coolness. And this coolness can be achieved through the practice of ānāpāṇāsati. There are a few different kinds of nibbāna, which we will distinguish, and all of these can be obtained or be realized through the practice of ānāpāṇāsati. One kind of nibbāna is samāhitā nibbāna, or temporary nibbāna. It's a coolness that occurs for a short period of time, now and again, when the defilements have cooled down. When the defilements have cooled down, then there is this temporary kind of Nibbāna. An aspect of temporary Nibbāna we can call coincidental Nibbāna, and because this coincidental nibbāna can arise when, for a short period of time, the practice of anapanasati prevents the arising of any defilement. And then so at that, in those brief moments, or maybe many moments, there is nibbāna. It's still a temporary kind of nibbāna. The first kind of nibbāna arises coincidentally. The second kind is when some cause, such as anapanasati, prevents the arising of defilement. These are the two kinds of temporary Nibbāna. We can call these a taste of Nibbāna or a sample. These these are four tastes of the real Nibbāna. Now, this kind of Nibbāna you need to be aware of or you need to see, is something that that happens here and now. It has nothing to do with dying. You don't have to die to experience Nibbāna. Nibbāna can be experienced here and now, and anapanasati helps this in experiencing the temporary kind of Nibbāna. When the fires of the defilements of greed, anger, delusion, fear, worry, selfishness, etc. When all these fires cool down, then there is the coolness of Nibbāna. It may be only temporary, but it's very, very worthwhile, and you can have a taste of this while practicing Anapanasati. As these temporary Nibbānas are understood, they can be lengthened, and they will occur more and more often. And in this way, all these temporary nibbanas can be perfected into total nibbana or full nibbana. Full nibbana is the complete end of all dukkha, the complete end of all defilements and all attachment. This can also be achieved through the practice, or the practice of anapanasati can lead to this. So this is the the highest benefit of anapanasati, Nibbāna. And it is Nibbāna which you do not have to die to realize. It can be realized here and now, in this very life. Let's make sure we all understand this word Nibbāna correctly. First of all, it has nothing to do with death. Nibbāna is not in any way connected with death. There is another word, parinibbāna, or parinibbāna. This is used for the death of an enlightened being. When an enlightened being dies, that we call parinibbāna. But an enlightened being has already achieved nibbāna while still alive. And then the death of that enlightened being is called parinibbāna. But nibbāna, without the pari in front is completely unrelated to death. Be very clear about this one common misunderstanding. Second, the word nibbāna means coolness, and this word coolness can be used in a variety of ways, on from very crude levels to the very highest and most sublime level of the total nibbāna of an enlightened being. This word nibbāna can be applied to physical, material examples, such as if we take a hot coal, a burning, red-hot ember out of a fire, and then we leave leave it aside and it slowly cools down until it, it stops glowing and is no longer hot that, then we can say that that ember or charcoal has nibbanad. It has gone from hotness to coolness. So we can say it has nibanad. Or if we go to a restaurant and order soup, and the soup is too hot, they bring the soup and it is very hot, too hot to eat, then we leave it on the table and it, it cools down. When it is cool enough to eat, we say that the soup has nibbanad. But we can apply the word nibbana to animals. Take wild animals, such as an elephant which is captured in the forest. It is brought in and trained and domesticated. And after a period of training, the former wild element elephant is now very tame and peaceful. And so we can say that the elephant has Nibbana. So the word Nibbana can be applied to animals as well. We can also apply it to humans in the sense that someone who has a nice house, a good family, enough clothes, enough food, a good job, they live in a peaceful community, their health is good. Somebody in a condition like this can be said, who have realized Nibbāna, but this is an incomplete, relative, physical, material kind of Nibbāna. It it's not the Nibbāna of the mind or the spirit, it's only a physical example of Nibbāna. So the word Nibbāna has these, these different levels of meaning, from the purely physical meaning of a red-hot of a red hot coal that cools down or to wild animals being tamed, or human beings who live a cool, comfortable life. These are meanings, incomplete, lesser meanings of the word Nibbāna. But the highest meaning of the word Nibbāna is the coolness of the mind, the mind where all the fires of selfishness, of defilement, of greed, anger, fear, worry, delusion, envy, jealousy, where all these fires of attachment have died away. and There is nothing but coolness. This is the highest kind of Nibbana. So through the practice of Anapanasati, we can realize coolness here and now, the Nibbana that is here and now. There are many, many other benefits of the practice of anapanasati. And it would take us hours to discuss them all, which is probably more than you can listen to and maybe more than our strength allows. So I'll just bring up one more advantage of the practice of anapanasati. Through this practice, you will know your last breath, which means you can know the moment that you will die. This doesn't mean that you can choose the moment of death. It just means that because of studying the breath for so long and understanding the breathing so well, that when the deterioration of the body has reached the point where there is going to be death, one will be aware of that. One will know one's moment of death. So this is the last advantage which we will mention of the practice of mindfulness, of breathing. So the Buddha, the last point we will make is that the Buddha said very, very clearly that I was enlightened while practicing anapanasati. The Buddha made this very powerful um Testimonial for Anapanasati and said that he was practicing mindfulness of breathing when he was enlightened. The Buddha became the Buddha through the practice of mindfulness of breathing. He, this is what he was doing that allowed him to be enlightened. And So the Buddha said that this is the best or so he recommends this practice to other sentient beings to sentient beings. He advises us all to use this practice for the welfare of ourselves and others, for the welfare of everyone. This is the best way of practicing that exists. There is no better way to practice the Dhamma than the practice of mindfulness, of breathing. And so for this reason the Buddha has made this teaching available to us. And we have done our best to share it with you. So this ends our series of talks discussing Anapanasati. We will end today's meeting at this time. Thank you for listening.